Good evening. I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. This forum, founded by and named in honor of E.N. Jack Thompson, is designed to engage Nebraska students and Nebraskans in issues affecting the world. We are grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing support of this series. We also thank the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, and the University Bookstore. This evening's Ian Thompson Forum is the Charles and Linda Wilson Dialogue on Domestic Issues. The goal in creating this forum is to present multiple views of an important issue at the same lecture. When interviewed last year, Charles Wilson stated, I always enjoyed the speakers at the Thompson Forums, but sometimes I wondered what the other side would have said about a particular issue. So Linda and I decided to fund an annual dialogue that would include differing perspectives on topics that are important to Nebraskans. We want to spur thinking and discussion about domestic issues. Charles and Linda Wilson are long associated with Nebraska and Lincoln. Charles is a retired cardiologist and former member of the University of Nebraska Board of Regents where he served for 18 years. Linda Wilson is a former Lincoln City Council member we thank them for their gener generosity and the foresight in bringing this important format to the Thompson Forums. Before we introduce our speakers, I'd like to remind you of our final forum for the season, featured Colin Campbell, Chairman and President of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Okay. Okay. That forum is titled Citizenship in a Global Age and will take place on Tuesday, April 14th at 7 p.m. here at the Leed Center. I'd also like to thank Dr. Alan Tompkins, director of the University of Nebraska Public Policy Center, who presented our pre-talk this evening. Tonight's dialogue will discuss immigration, which plays a critical factor in America's growth, but also provides a source of much controversy. Most recommendations for immigration reform center on the issue of a path to citizenship. Opponents say this is amnesty, a strategy that proved ineffective in previous immigration legislation. Supporters say legalization is both a necessity and a moral obligation. The title of tonight's forum is Illegal Immigrants, Path to Citizenship. We have two very distinguished scholars who will be introduced by Dr. Lloyd Ambrosius, Chair of the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues Committee, and Samuel Clark Waugh, Distinguished Professor of International Relations and Professor of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dr. Ambrose will Ambrius will also moderate the lecture. At the end of the dialogue, you will have opportunity to ask questions of our speakers. Please write your questions on the cards provided, pass them to the ushers. Now please welcome Dr. Ambrosius to the stage. Thank you. Good evening and welcome again to this forum. Uh, the format that we will use this evening is that each of the two distinguished speakers will uh, make a presentation uh, and then we will move over to the chairs which they have already taken and uh, we will have an opportunity for them to uh, respond to each other and then we will uh, open it up uh, to questions that, that you uh, can give to the ushers and which will be brought up so that we can uh, ask those questions and continue the uh, dialogue in that way. Uh, let me first of all introduce the first speaker uh, for this evening. Uh, Vernon M. Briggs, Jr. is Professor Emeritus in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. 
Uh, he started his academic career as a student at the University of Maryland at College Park, uh, where he majored in economics and served as president of the Student Government Association. Uh, after graduation in 1959, he began graduate studies in labor economics at Michigan State University, receiving an MA uh, in 1960 and a PhD in 1965. Uh, Professor Briggs uh, began teaching economics at Michigan State, uh, first as a graduate teaching assistant and then uh, as an assistant instructor. Uh, in 1964, he joined the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, where he was promoted through the ranks to professor of economics uh, in 1972. In 1974, he received the Gene Holloway Award for Teaching Excellence. He left Texas uh, to join the faculty of the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University uh, in 1978. Uh, where he specialized in human uh, resource economics and public policy. Over the years, Professor Briggs' research has embraced such subjects as minority participation in apprenticeship training, southern rural market analysis, uh, direct job creation strategies, Chicano employment issues, and immigration policy and the American labor force. His extensive publications include his most recent book, uh, Mass Immigration and the National Interest, uh, subtitled uh, Public Directions uh, for the New Century. In addition to his research and publications, Professor Briggs has served on the boards of directors of such organizations as the National Council on Employment Policy, uh, the Corporation for Public and Private Ventures, uh, and the Center for Immigration Studies. He has also served on the editorial boards of such uh, professional journals as the Industrial and Labor Relations Review, uh, the Journal of Human Resources, uh, the Texas uh, Business Review, and the Journal of Economic Issues. Uh, let us welcome uh, Professor Briggs uh, to the LEAD Center. Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight to discuss one of the most difficult areas in domestic public policy today, and that is the issue of dealing with illegal immigration and what do we do with the illegal immigrants who are here. Um, <clears throat> whether or not we should provide a pathway to citizenship. Just a little bit brief background quickly. We, we have about 37 million foreign-born persons in the United States population at the present time, about 12 million of whom are here illegally which means about one-third of our foreign-born population is here in spite of the terms of our immigration policy. The flow of illegal immigrants is, is estimated at about 390,000 a year by the Pew Hispanic Trust. Of the illegal immigrant population, the Census Bureau estimates that 57% of, of the illegal immigrant population, that was 12 million, have, do not have a high school diploma. About 27% have only a high school diploma. So about 84%, in other words, of the, of the uh, illegal immigrant population, the adult illegal immigrant population, um, have only a high, a high school diploma or less. Consequently, when we're concerned about the labor market impact of illegal immigration, it's the low-skilled labor market in the United States that bears the brunt of the competition for jobs and for wages. And it's been that way, that group that I've been most concerned with through my entire life, not just of 
for all races and, uh, and ethnic and racial backgrounds, not just, for, not just with the issue of illegal immigrants. But illegal immigration is a big issue in the low-wage labor market in the United States. Our two political parties, the Republican Party does a pretty good job of taking care of the wealthy. The Democrats are trying to make a decent effort to deal with the middle class, but neither one of these political parties does very much when it comes to concern about the lower income class and the, the, the working class of this population, that lower one-third, which is made up of about 52 million people. It's a sizable portion of our labor force that is in this labor market and who bear much of the competition from the illegal immigration. So the issue of dealing with illegal immigrants is, in my view, deals with their labor market impact and whether or not those that are here should be, um, should be given another pathway to citizenship to stay, which in my view would simply guarantee that in 10 years we'll have another 12 million a year. Um, I am opposed to the concept of a pathway to citizenship for the, a number of reasons, which is basically, say, another word for amnest amnesty. Um, the, um, the reasons are as follows. First of all, um, with respect to the illegal immigration population, um, uh, with the, uh, 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 it's grossly unfair to the 4.2 million people in, in the world today who applied to legally immigrate to the United States. The waiting lines are very long. Those people are following our rules, right, following our regulations, filling out the forms, paying all the fees, doing everything it takes to legally immigrate to the United States, many of whom will never get in. The lines for many of these countries are, are very long and quite lengthy for a variety of reasons. Um, so the lines are quite long. Those people who are waiting outside the country, if they have children, those children are not entitled to U.S. citizenship by birth because they're not, they're following the law, they're outside the country. The illegal immigrants who come into the country, of course, they're able to work, they're able to get jobs, they're enjoying the opportunities to compete in the U.S. labor market, and if by chance they have children, those children have a right to become U.S. citizenship. So it's one of these things in which those who break our laws get all the benefits. If we have a pathway to citizenship, those who are following the laws get nothing. So I think there's the first reason, and a very fundamental reason to oppose the pathway to citizenship is, is basically equity. It's unfair. Secondly, there is no ambiguity in our immigration laws about, about illegal immigration. It's very clear. And since, especially since 1986, with respect to illegal immigrants, they're not to be in the labor force. They're not to work. And um, this was a, an effort that, to, to, which up until 1986, our immigration laws were ambiguous. I supported the first amnesty back in 1986. I proposed I was writing in favor of it, in fact, in the early 1970s. You know, perhaps one of the few earliest writers in support of, him, of the first amnesty. And I took an enormous amount of flack for years for, our, for, for favoring it. I favored it because our immigration laws were ambiguous at the time. It was illegal for illegal immigrants to be in the country, to enter the country without inspection or to overstay a visa, but it was not illegal for them to work. Uh, to, to change that public policy, we enacted employer sanctions in 1986, making it illegal for employers to hire illegal immigrants. And uh, that, was, that was, in other words, changed the light from yellow to red. There's no ambiguity in the law anymore about what the employment rights of illegal immigrants were. Uh, but that was the reason to support the first amnesty. Little did I know that our politicians would not enforce their immigration laws. And today, and, and, and after we passed these sanctions, illegal immigration and it gave the first amnesty to three million people, which was the most generous amnesty ever enacted in any country in the world at the time. Um, a very generous amnesty, which I strongly supported at the time because the laws were, amb were ambiguous. They're not ambiguous after that. But since that time, we've had um, eight more amnesties, small ones enacted. And this has become a regular part of the public policy in the United States today with our politicians. 
That it once, when the illegal immigrant population begins to grow, rather than ask them to, to leave to enforce their immigration laws or deny them right to really to work, we simply legitimize their presence, which then frees them, of course, to work in any occupation in any geographic part of the country once they get get the right to, to actually stay here and remain. Uh, so. Um, um, I think the fact that we have now had eight amnesties, we had a ninth one even pending on September 11th, 2001, and Congress was already to be passed um, that day uh, in which they were ready to pull back. Um, I think this is a policy that, is, that has failed miserably. After eight amnesties, uh, for, for a total of six million people who have received amnesties since 1986, we now have 12 million illegal immigrants in the country. Uh, fool me once, uh, shame on me, uh, or shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, we shouldn't be fooled again by giving amnesty that think this is going to stop illegal immigration. All it does is encourage more and more to come and to impact those in the low-wage low labor market of the United States adversely. Thirdly, those people who argue in favor of, 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 of pathway to citizenship say that they, people are actually, they're not, it's not an amnesty, the people are going to have to earn their right to citizenship. This is a complete hoax, a complete hoax on the American public, an innocent public. They say, of course, that people are going to have to pay a fine. They're going to have to pay tax, their back taxes. They're going to have to learn English. And they're going to be background checks for all of those. Well, if you look at the legislation that was proposed in, 19, in 2007, so-called Kennedy-McCain bill, that uh, uh, fortunately was not passed uh, in, in, 19, uh, in 2007, but came close, it will actually be part of what's basically once this legislation begins again, it's more likely to be the terms of which it begins on the so-called Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. Uh, there is a provision for a fine, that's true, of $2,500 per illegal immigrant. But it also has a provision that says that if, you, if it's going to create hardship for the illegal immigrant, they don't have to pay it. They can get a waiver. Well, I think you can pretty well bet that there are going to be a lot of waivers issued. No one's going to pay that fine. Secondly, besides they're supposed to have to pay all the taxes they would have paid that they hadn't paid in the United States uh, uh, while they're in illegal status. But we've never been able to get them to write into the legislation what those taxes were actually going to be. Do they have to pay the income taxes? Well, most poor people in the United States don't pay income taxes, so that wouldn't be much of an issue. Do they have to pay state income taxes? Well, it's almost the same thing, but that's not clear. Do they have to pay Social Security taxes? Not, not specified. Social Security tax is an extremely regressive tax, which would fall very heavily on poor people. And if illegal immigrants were in the country, that 7.5% income uh, in Social Security tax for every year in which they worked on whatever they earned could be a considerable sum. But it's not in the legislation. And for some reason, the proponents of this legislation oppose any effort to specifically require that they have to pay all back Social Security taxes. I will bet you that they will not have to pay those taxes. Then there's a the requirement they have to learn English, which of course sounds uh, as a expectation or something that you would expect people would have to do. It's, it's part of the normal process for naturalization. But uh, uh, for natural to be able to, to get the pathway to citizenship, they have to learn English. Whenever we've got 14, sorry, we've got 12 million people here. And someone's going to have to pass grade they speak, who speaks the sign, who speaks English. So by the time the legislation passed the last form in which it was being debated, to pass that requirement that you speak English, all you have to do is sign up for a class. You don't have to pass the class, you just have to enroll in the class. And if you enrolled in the class to learn English, you would satisfy the English learning requirement. That's a hoax on the American public. It's like saying if you just want to get a degree from the University of Nebraska, all you have to do is sign up for a class. 
Uh, that might be very nice in, uh, in terms of uh, being able to easily get, get in a degree, but certainly one wouldn't want to hire someone who just simply signed up for class and was never tested or examined or anybody mentioned this to find out whether they actually knew anything or learned anything while they were here. So that's a part of the hopes. The background checks will be extremely expensive if they were to be done. And we must, we do require background checks for illegal immigrants or even for refugees today. Extremely costly for 12 million people if it's to be done seriously. It has to be done for everybody because we don't allow any uh, racial stereotyping or ethnic stereotyping. Extremely costly process, costs billions of dollars to accomplish basically what? Uh, most illegal immigrants are not threats to, as, as terrorists, over very few if any are. But uh, they'd all have to be examined, all of which would be a costly, costly process. And the last reason to oppose this pathway to citizenship and just these other ones is simply the coattail effect, the big one. That is, if these 12 million illegal immigrants are to be given, put on the pathway to citizenship, permanent residency, ultimately to citizenship themselves, it opens the door, given our current legal immigration system, for the admission of all of the relatives along uh, extended families uh, to enter, uh, many of them outside of quotas, some within quotas, um, but it's estimates by uh, our run anywhere from 20 to 60 million people will be entitled to enter the United States on the coattails of the, of the illegal immigrants who were granted that status. That is an enormous number of persons that's outside of our legal immigration system, our refugee system, and undoubtedly the continuation of illegal immigration itself, since none of this actually does anything to stop illegal immigrants, uh, immigration. So that would be an enormous number of persons, most of whom we anticipate would have the same human capital deficiencies as the illegal immigrant population today. Most of them would not have high school diplomas. Uh, uh, most of them would be unskilled. Most of them would be non-English speaking all of which would place enormous social burdens on the taxpayers of the United States to accommodate over the years. It would be a human tsunami of, of unskilled persons, which for any unskilled worker in the United States today would mean it's going to be hopeless for the next 20 years in terms of wage, ever getting a wage increase or, or in many cases even be able to find employment opportunities. It would be a devastating impact, impact on low-skilled workers in the United States of all races, of all ethnic backgrounds, should this be, should this be permitted. So I oppose the idea of, um, of, of amnesty. Um, and uh, in fact, I would clearly, basically firmly say it's the worst piece of labor legislation I have ever seen in 50 years in a professional career. I've never seen a proposal that has such awful labor market implications on the poorest workers in the United States, that labor market that is already has low wages, uh, high unemployment rates, the highest unemployment rates in the United States are those without high school diplomas. And then the second highest vote are those with only a high school diploma. That labor market would be devastated by this type, by this type of an issue. So I would say, and uh, as Samuel Gompers, the America's greatest labor leader, said many years ago in his own autobiography, immigration, its most fundamental aspect is the labor issue. No matter how immigrants are admitted to the United States, for what justifiable reason, they all have to work. And uh, so consequently, the impact of them and their, their spouses and their children is in the, low, is in the labor market. And when we deal with the illegal immigration, it's overwhelmingly going to be the lowest skilled labor market in the United States is going to bear the impact. Many years ago, the late great senator from the state of New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, said people are entitled to their opinions, but they're not entitled to their facts. Now, you can have your opinion all you want about this subject matter, but you're not entitled to your facts. It is documented impact that, that illegal immigrants flooded the low-wage labor market. They compete in the low-wage labor market. When you increase the size of the low-wage labor market, you depress wages in that, in that labor market. 
As you depress wages in that labor market, you increase the incidences of poverty. Poverty in the United States has now increased nine of the last 10 years. We expect a gigantic increase in poverty this year already. So you're going to increase the ranks of the poverty, of people in poverty. And, uh, and if you increase the ranks of poverty, you, you increase income disparity in the United States, which is also, which has already uh, been get, widening for the last 40, 40 years. And we have the most unequal distribution in, in terms of the top of people at the top having the, 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 the smallest percentage at the top having their largest percentage of income, and the largest percentage of the people having less part of the income they have had in 45 years now, already in the United States. And illegal immigration is not the only reason. I'm not trying to blame illegal immigrants for everything. But it's a big factor in, in contributing to poverty, to low wages, and to, uh, and to uh, uh, income disparity in, in this country. The U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, one of the finest studies, the finest study ever done of immigration in the United States, chaired by the late Barbara Jordan, uh, stated what our immigration policy, what, what it takes to have a credible immigration policy in the United States. And in their final report in 1997, they wrote the, fo the following. Um, those who do get in, who sorry, those who should get in do get in. Those who should not get in do not get in. And those who should be who are deportable are required to leave. It can't be stated any clearer. That should be the basis of our immigration policy, not again providing another amnesty for illegal immigrants, which only guarantees that we'll be dealing with this problem in another 10 years of the same magnitude or even worse. Thank you. Uh, Michael Olivas is the William B. Bates uh, Distinguished Chair of Law at the University of Houston Law Center and the Director of the Institute for Higher Education Law and Governance. Uh, he holds a baccalaureate degree from the Pontifical College uh, Josephinum, uh, a master's and PhD from Ohio State University and a JD uh, from Georgetown University Law Center. In 1989-1990, he was a visiting professor of law at the University of Wisconsin and special counsel to then-Chancellor Donna Shalala. In 1997, he held the Mason Ladd Distinguished Visiting Chair at the University of Iowa College of Law. Professor Olivas is the author or co-author of 12 books in 2010 uh, Harvard University Press will publish his 13th book on the subject of undocumented immigrant children. He has served on the editorial boards of scholarly journals, including the Review of Higher Education, the Journal of College and University Law, and the Journal of Higher Education. He is a member of the Pennsylvania Bar. He served as general counsel to the American Association of University Professors from 1994 to 1998. The Association for the Study of Higher Education gave him its 2000 Special Merit Award. He has been designated as a fellow by the National Association of College and University Attorneys. Uh, since 2002, uh, he has served as a director of the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund Board. Professor Olivas uh, has a substantial and varied legal consulting practice, including representing faculty, staff, institutional, and state clients 
uh, serving as an expert witness in federal and state courts, including the United States Supreme Court, uh, Circuit Courts of Appeal, and federal district courts, and joining as a member of litigation teams in educational finance and immigration matters. Uh, let us welcome him to the LEAD Center. Thank you. I'd like to give my personal thanks to the Wilson family to, and the other persons who brought me here, Marsha White, Professor Anna Shavers, Professor Miguel Carranza, and um, the Senior Vice President Linda Pratt, my friend from AAUP days of many years ago. Uh, I w this is one of those few occasions in my life where I've not, when I've prepared remarks, but I actually want to come up and tear them all up uh, so as to correct the record. Um, <laughs> the good thing about having economists in the debates about uh, immigration is that there has developed um, a school of immigration economists, but the good thing about them is many of them actually know the laws, and so to characterize the Chinese Student Adjustment Act, I suppose, as an amnesty, simply is like characterizing bringing in library books late as an amnesty. I'm all for them, if that's the case. I'm all for them, if that's the case. <laughs> we had more prosperity since the Immigrant Refor Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 with uh, uh, much better wages and incorporation of the undocumented people at that time into U.S. society, uh, how can that be seen as a, as a public policy failure? Uh, Professor Briggs, I think you should have gone with your first instinct, which was the correct one. That is, it was right at the time and it would be right again today. The reason that an amnesty has taken on such negative uh, sensibility is frankly because it did work this last time. I feel the pain of these communities. After all, earlier today, he cited uh, poor communities. Um, as a Mexican from a poor community, my father was a liquor store clerk, uh, I'm all for the incorporation of the undocumented Mexicans into the United States economy and to our polity as well. The reason we have so many undocumented persons is frankly because we make it so impossible for people from Mexico to come to the United States. To suggest that these laws are equally applied simply ignores the fact that we allow as many Mexicans, 20,000 per year in legally, as we would from Sweden. Um, and by the way, as to Sweden, I'm all for keeping out ABBA in their music, and I think that that is where immigration has failed us. Immigrants have made this country and will do so again. And to suggest that the Social Security taxes would somehow break uh, the ability of government to pay for this simply ignores the fact that we have many hundreds of thousands of undocumented Mexicans and other undocumented persons paying into Social Security now when they can't take it out at the other end. And so we have the worst of all worlds. Moreover, restrictionist mentalities such as this have made it impossible for us to gain comprehensive immigration reform, including things as otherwise non-controversial as the DREAM Act, introduced by my radical colleague, Orrin Hatch, who normally, when he introduces something, I would be against just on general principles. 
However, he thoughtfully, along with 55 other Senate colleagues, voted for this. It's only because of the breakdown of the cloture rules and the gridlock in Washington that it now takes 60 votes to enact legislation. The DREAM Act is for people who've already received college degrees. It would provide a legalization path to them, just as it did so successfully in 1986, something I record as a public policy success not as a failure, and I believe it's demonstrably so. The fact that it failed to prevent other undocumented immigration is simply because today, for, for someone who is a permanent resident in the United States who wishes to bring his spouse legally here from Mexico would have to wait 12 years to do so. If I'm a Filipino and wish to bring my brother in today, it's a 17-year wait. For someone to suggest that immigration works and works well simply beggars the imagination. It does not work well, at least if you're from one of the six countries that is oversubscribed. And this has nothing to do with ABBA and ABBA records. Those countries simply are not only allowed to bring anyone they want to here, but they may participate in the, in the diversity lottery, which in an extraordinary turnabout of common sense, allows only countries, people to apply from countries that are undersubscribed. If you're from Mexico, China, India, the Dominican Republic, the Philippines, and Hong Kong, you are not eligible to apply for this. And yet, when I was being driven here from, from Omaha the other day, uh, the young man who drove me here said, are you for or against immigration? I said, well, I'm, I'm for it. He said, well, I was against it until I brought my wife here from the Ukraine Everybody's against immigration in the abstract as long as it works for them. I said, well, you know, it's a good thing she wasn't from Mexico or you'd have a 12-year wait. No wonder we have so many undocumented persons here. I'm much more concerned, frankly, with the overuse of H-1B visas that actually compete with U.S. workers. If we have so many people who are being displaced by, by the undocumented, why, aren't, why are our crops failing now? Why do lawns go uncut? Why do the low-end jobs that don't require great education, why are they not being filled by U.S. workers? The wages didn't rise after the, uh, the Immigration Reform and Control Act to attract U.S. workers. I don't want my kids doing those kinds, that kind of work. If we have a temporary worker program or if we bring people in here in a documented fashion, they're the ones who will do that work. Very little has been made of the competition at the high end where there's genuinely a trade-off between a University of Nebraska uh, electrical engineer and someone from Bangalore who can come here and actually compete for a job. These other jobs are not being competed for. Moreover, we have a system, a system of preemption that makes it possible for only the federal government to enact these policies. In my home state of New Mexico, on the day that he went out of office, the week he left office, Governor Tony Anaya declared a sanctuary and said, we will not enforce the, the immigration laws uh, in New Mexico. Now, he had run on that principle. He waited, of course, to find the courage of his convictions till the week he left office, having been term limited out. But we cannot have 50 such immigration policies. We cannot leave national security to every city council, including one chair in Nebraska, which just this morning uh, tried to pass immigration to restrict the ability of people to rent. Hazleton, Pennsylvania had its particular, uh, the quote, Hazleton Illegal Immigration Relief Act struck down by a federal district court. Of course, they argued that it wasn't really immigration. Someone who drafted that law should have told them that when they named it the Illegal Immigration Relief Act, because in our system, we don't enact 
local and county and municipal and statewide immigration any more than we do national security. Moreover, virtually every court that has looked at these has seen these for what they are, a subterfuge that is simply anti-Mexican, to suggest that these laws are being applied evenly because they are neutral on their face simply ignores the reality of us sharing a 3,000-mile border with Mexico. In one case in Long Island, where after years of having a workplace where uh, people could go get, get work and people could drive by and pick them up to hire, the judge said this when it was struck down after Mexicans began to go there. The evidence, viewed as a whole, makes it clear that the village's claim the defendant's actions were driven by legitimate law enforcement concerns is a pretext dreamed up to try and legitimize its activity in opposition to the presence of day laborers. Ultimately, this conclusion rests on the defendant's clear contradiction between their conclusory testimony that their campaign was not race-based and the hard facts which indicate that it was. Defendant's shared reason for conducting their ticketing campaign was entirely specious and the accusations they made concerning the social, the antisocial conduct of the day laborers themselves have no support whatever in the record. Every single case that has looked at this issue of these specific anti-immigrant ordinances, and there's no other way to characterize them, have largely concluded these are taxes upon Mexicans. These people are not out trying to, to stop Canadians coming in. Cast your mind back to the Atlanta, to the white Atlanta lawyer who had tuberculosis and who goes to Europe to get married and what's called back finding that he can't enter the United States, he's put on a watch list and he shows up at the Canadian border looking white, coming in and the person says, the, the immigration officer says, well, you're on my list but you look fine to me and he lets him in. The man had to have his lung removed in a Denver hospital. I hope he had Mexican orderlies treating him because a Mexican couldn't have gotten in that way. Contrast this with Carl Hayden High School robotics national champions who go from Arizona to uh, uh, Buffalo and decide that the view is better from the other side. So they go to the Mexicans, they go to the Canadian side and they try and come back in and the kids arrested coming back in are undocumented Mexican students, singled out because they look Mexican. Now, maybe they should have had tuberculosis, maybe they should have sweated a bit more coming in. Maybe they should have sweated a bit more coming in. No, oh, this is a hard audience, I understand that. <laughs> I think that that the differentiation between the Mexican border keeping out the hordes, the language used already this evening about the large numbers of people poised at the border to overrun us. In contrast to the northern border where we've had terrorists who have entered, Sikh terrorists who entered to bomb LAX. Not a single person coming through the southern border has ever been identified as a terrorist and a concession was made earlier that it's unlikely there were. Now, According to Governor Huckabee, there are many uh, Pakistanis who simply look Mexican who are coming in the south border. I simply leave it to his finer honed uh, Arkansas sensibilities <laughs> and ability to single out Mexicans from Pakistanis. Just for the record, I'm Mexican, not Pakistani. 
It's my thesis and my response to these local and state initiatives that any of these ordinances aimed at regulating general immigration functions are unconstitutional as a function of exclusive federal preemptory powers. Now, if purely state, county, or local interests are governed, and if federal preemptory powers are not triggered, these ordinances could be properly enacted. Section 287G of the Federal uh, Code of Regulations allows for states and municipalities to enter into agreements to work with immigration authorities. However, only a couple dozen have done so, all of them since 2001, despite the fact that they've had this authority since 1996. And why is that the case? Because they understand police who come in contact, not as we do in, in our classrooms, our law and economics classrooms, but who daily come into contact with these communities cannot be community policers if the police functions are intertwined with immigration authority. Why would someone report something? They often come from countries where the police are not honest or not seen as their friends. And if they understand, these police chiefs understand that they are not seeking this power that they have because it's not efficacious. Because doing so means they're going to be able less well to perform their policing duties. So shifting these to the local authorities simply is not going to work, and I believe that they're unconstitutional and will, be found, will continue to be found so. Now, there's been a surprising amount of litigation and recently legislation on these issues. And I'll simply use the example of the State Dream Act here in Nebraska, which I come to congratulate you on. These students who are allowed by Supreme Court decision in 1982 to remain in school, if they do so, and if they stay here three years, are allowed to become in-state students. These students will be eligible for the DREAM Act. We want these people to be the first in line when the day comes that there's comprehensive immigration reform. When John McCain on one side and Senator Kennedy on the other side uh, get together on this, and we have a Democrat in office, uh, frankly, the biggest legalization occurred under President Reagan. And when you have Orrin Hatch in, uh, 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 writing the legislation, how can there be restrictionist and conservative claims that this is not being done by people who have the United States interest at heart? Did anybody know there was a left to Orrin Hatch? I, I didn't know such ground existed, and yet, in fact, they ran a candidate against him to punish him for his seeking part bipartisanship on this act. This at market today, notice this today, immigration, comprehensive immigration reform will be enacted, and the only question is, under what terms and exactly what particular prices? And then, let's see who props up the Social Security system. When I consider the hydraulics of preemption, which I've thought about and litigated for a long time, and the likely downsides of, of letting a thousand immigration policies bloom. I think that this is just wrong. We cannot do this. Think of the Bronco chase among the various jurisdictions in LA that all of us saw. OJ Simpson crossed over 11 different jurisdictions. How could we have a checkerboard where some jurisdictions enact legislation and others do not as to the undocumented. It would be just as confusing and just as difficult. Moreover, this is a tax, no matter 
it's race neutrality that will only be visited upon people who are Mexican. Let me just say, we have the discourse has deteriorated to the point that young white thugs in New York can go on what they call beaner expeditions, trying to find me, trying to find beaners, Mexicans, and by mistake, they kill an Ecuadorian who's a permanent resident, who has stood in the line, who has followed the rules. They didn't, the, the problem with racial hatred and rhetoric like this, the Lou Dobbsification of this, is that it is so coarse that the fine distinctions have not been made. I am Lou Dobbs' worst nightmare. I am a Mexican who speaks English and Spanish and studied in Latin, and I can go to court. And when the Minutemen take my client's property at gunpoint in Arizona, I will take their house. That is what the law can do, and that is what the law must do. The law has made these people vulnerable. We have invited them in. We flagrantly ignored the law for many years. We allowed the burden to be on the undocumented and not on the employers. And it is employers who employ and exploit these people. And it seems to me that if we're going to have any comprehensive immigration reform, it has to be enacted immediately. To do so otherwise and to blame it on the undocumented themselves because they wouldn't wait in line for 20 years to come here and join their novia is simply wrong. It is not, the problem is not the undocumented immigration system. The problem is the legal immigration system that makes it impossible for these people of good faith, conducted with background checks, and who have a great deal to offer this country. They must because we bring them here and we employ them and then we look the other way and say, oops, they're not documented. Oops, they have children here. Well, as Franz Fanon said, we sought workers and humans came. This is what comprehensive immigration reform, any responsible form of it, will have to entail. And I think that people who argue against it have a substantial burden of persuasion and a substantial burden of proof, which I believe they cannot meet. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Uh, if you have questions, and I'm sure you've heard enough already that you may uh, have some questions, uh, please uh, write them on the cards that you can get from the ushers and uh, pass them to the ushers so that they can be brought forward and uh, we'll have an opportunity to uh, have as many answers as, as possible. Uh, in the meantime, I want to give uh, both of you an opportunity to respond to each other and to pick up the points uh, for the dialogue that, that you would like to pursue uh, after hearing each other. So uh, either one of you can, can go first. Pardon. Professor Briggs. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a little off guard here because I thought we were going to discuss the pathway to citizenship tonight. And that's what I discussed. That's what I was asked to discuss. I, ha I have strong feelings on all kinds of immigration policy. I, I agree our immigration policy needs major reform. I believe in the reforms proposed by the Barbara Jordan's Commission on Immigration Reform, but that's a whole other subject. That's a whole other night. The DREAM Act, all, the local ordinances about illegal immigration, all the rest of it, all of those are debatable points. The, the issue tonight is was one part of the remedies for dealing with the illegal immigration. Do we reward those who have illegally immigrated to the United States in violation of our laws 
and, uh, and simply go on like we have done before on, a new, on eight different previous occasions, all of which lead to more illegal immigration, which all leads to more exploitation of illegal immigrants and to U.S. citizens. They're the ones who are left out on this all the time. It's not that these people move in the jobs that U.S. citizens will not take. I totally refute that statement. Citizens will not work on these jobs at the same working hours and working conditions and wages that illegal immigrants will, uh, will do them. But that doesn't mean they won't do them. Illegal immigrants, the literature is rampant on this, are preferred workers. They are preferred. If an employer can get an illegal immigrant, they, would, they want them over the U.S. citizen. And the reason they do, because the, the, the comparison for the illegal immigrant is not the U.S. labor market, for whom a $7 an hour wage job looks very good. Their comparison is the, is the labor market in Mexico or El Salvador or Philippines or what have you, where you're lucky to get $2 a day or what have you. And so if someone comes up here and works for $7 an hour, they think they're in heaven. Whereas a person in the United States knows that's an awful wage and you're working at the lowest possible way in which a citizen can, can be employed. We've seen this in the raids when we've taken illegal immigrants out of the Swift Meat Company's plants over here in Georgia. The companies had to raise the wages from $7 to $9 an hour, and U.S. citizens came all over the place to take those jobs at $9 an hour. And that's still poverty wages. Those are terrible wages. I'm not trying to defend them. But citizens were willing to work at $9, but they simply couldn't work at $7 an hour. That's just one example. But I think that's the general premise. The idea that I would argue with you, I can take a position that says that, that, that maybe you disagree with me on, on this issue, but, but the real issue is do you want to go back to 1986 and repeal employer sanctions? Do you want to go back to that awful era that existed before we had the Immigration Reform Control Act of 1986, which was supposed to end illegal immigration? That was the understanding. It was over with. We were going to place sanctions. They were not going to work. I and mean, we were going to give amnesty to everybody who was here. I supported that in fairness. It had to be done. I supported it. And that would be the end of it. Well, we know it didn't work. Do you want to go back? And that's the honest position here. The honest position is I want employer sanctions to be repealed. I want to, you really believe that in your heart, that you want employers to go out and be able to hire illegal immigrants from anywhere in the world and let every U.S. citizen compete on the terms of somebody from a third world country, whatever wages or working conditions, they're willing to do that job. If you are, then you want to, then you want to repeal employer sanctions. I want employer sanctions, but I want them enforced. And those people who break our laws, simply there have got to be, be penalties for breaking their laws. You simply cannot ignore the law. And that's what basically this pro the proposition is that when we give continual amnesties, is we simply, we don't want the laws enforced, but we don't want to, employ, we don't want to repeal employer sanctions. So I'll well, ignore that. Uh, I guess since the honest position has been staked out, I'll simply have to take the dishonest one, you know, the other oh, side, I, high ground having been staked out. I just hope there's no nosebleeds in the, in the Olympus of that. Um, the real truth is that employer sanctions were a trade-off, and if they've not been enforced, it's because they're as expensive to enforce as the, the checks that would have to be done on the undocumented. If, if it's expensive to administer these, then it has to be conceded that they're expensive, and neither a Republican nor a Democratic uh, uh, president and their administration have chosen to do so. The reason they do, that they don't do so is because they don't want to do so. We have always been of two minds, on the one hand, militarizing the border and making it more difficult and pushing people further out, making it harder for them to get in, and then allowing them without, with very little downside to employers to hire them. 
So my response is, let's unionize them. Let's organize them. If you want to do something, don't simply say that it's illegal and that they're all lawbreakers. They've been made into lawbreakers with our connivance. If that's the case, then let's organize them. Let's make the NLRA apply to them. Let us uh, enforce employment sanctions. Let us do all of those kinds of things that have helped American labor force heretofore. Not simply curse the darkness, and, and it, it seems to me that that is the fairer way to do it, and that's the only way that's going to work, because push, the reason we have so many undocumented persons in the United States now is because we've made it so hard for the circulatory migration patterns to work. It is so hard to get in now that once people are here, they stay here. In the old days, they would send remittances, but they would also return, as, as Professor Briggs' own scholarship has shown and other demographers have shown, these people would go back and then they would return on a cycle kind of basis. They, they had no intention of staying here. We have turned these people into wannabe citizens by making it impossible for them to return in the kind of circular migration pattern that has historically been the case, particularly for Mexicans. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that circular pattern was especially the case with for agriculture workers, but illegal immigration is not just a Mexican issue. And that's something we've got to understand. In fact, <clears throat> in my course in immigration policy for years at Cornell, I purposely used a book dealing with Chinese illegal immigration, which is a horrendous problem in this country, underneath the surface of an enormous exploitation, where these people pay sixty and seventy thousand dollars, not fifteen hundred to three or four hundred on the southern border, to fifty or sixty thousand dollars for the privilege of coming working in the United States twelve hours, fifteen hours a day in a garment factory or a restaurant or what have you and are locked, many of them locked up at night in human slavery. And it's a, this is a very big fig issue. Just to break the stereotype that illegal immigration is just from Mexico, is I think it's wrong to simply put this thing as a Mexican issue or anti-Mexican. I'm opposed to illegal immigration from every country and the exploitation of human beings that is inevitable when you allow people in, in, in that labor market where the law says should not be in there. And I want to see our immigration laws enforced I, I grant you that, it, that both parties don't want to enforce this law, and a big part of it, one thing we do agree on, is I want enforcement and penalty, heavy penalties on employers. And I think that would bring this thing to the heaviest, and that's what I thought we were going to get. But we're not getting it. It's, it's illegal for employers to hire illegal immigrants, but the way we are right now, any employer who tries to be honest and tries to only hire U.S. citizens is at a competitive disadvantage. It's a perverse system we've got now where illegal immigrants, those employers who hire them, have a competitive advantage over those who follow the law. And that's why the only way to get rid of this issue is to strictly enforce their immigration laws and let people know there's only one way to come into this country, and that's through the front door. I agree with you the system needs dramatic changes, but, until they, but, but that does not mean I, it's, it's right for people to break the law. What the law is is what it is, it's the legal immigration system. Let's change that. That's another subject to debate what that should be. But no one has the right simply to come in inside. We're, we're going to ignore the law. We ain't got a right to come to the United States. You don't have a right to come to the United States. You need you know? to come to the border more often. It's been a long time since it was three or four hundred dollars, Vernon. It has not been that in, in many years. And the, I would well, say that if you want, if it's if it's laws that you want to enforce, then how about child labor laws? How about I'm all for it. Well, but these these I'm are the root of the problem. Do you think that the Pikesville uh, uh, Iowa beef processing plant, a kosher plant, yes. by the way, supposed to report to a higher authority, yes. that they had th all those Dominican children and all those other people in there unbeknownst 
to the employers? Of course not. I, it, well, but it seems to me that rather than simply say that it's immigration laws that need to be enforced, we have people who are in the United States who are working, who are paying taxes, who are paying uh, Social Security taxes, and we are not enforcing those laws. Those laws would discover any violations of immigration paperwork I wish they as would. well. But, but, but then I would urge you to add that to the chorus of the laws that need to be enforced. Everything I've written has always included that. But I, you haven't said that tonight. Well, I, no, you're we're only forcing... With pathway to citizenship is what the contract I said, that's what we were debating. If you're going to immigration law, I'm willing to do that. That's yep. a much bigger issue. But let's take this issue here. You hit a beautiful case. This case over in Iowa last year where three or four hundred illegal immigrants were apprehended for violating immigration laws, but there were thousands of violations found that night of child labor laws, of fair labor standards laws, of not paying minimum wage and hours, health and safety violations, all of which were all been going on so that that company had a competitive advantage over any honest meat producer in the, who might try to produce in compliance with the law. This was allowed to go on. But I can't get, I mean, I can't get these other laws enforced. Um, simply by simply saying we want to, we've got to have a commitment to enforce our labor laws as well. As, as, but it's uh, not immigration. No, immigrants immigration, will undercut that. Well, the, the market will not allow that. All you can do with the Fair Labor Standards Act is enforce a $7 a minimum wage. I want wages to be 8 and $9, $10. A Fair Labor Standards Act can't do that. A market force would do that. It'll allow wages to go up. If people don't want to do these dirty jobs, if they don't want to cut the lawns, if they don't want to do labor jobs, which I think Americans will do and what have you, wages will go up for those who, do, who, who will be doing or they won't get done. That's what a free labor market's all about. It doesn't say, well, we can't get any citizens to pay for it so we can find some other poor soul on the planet who'll come in and do the work for it so we don't have to raise wages. Then we can say Americans won't take those jobs. That can't be. Let, 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 I, I'm sure that the two of you can, can continue for all the time that we have, but I want yeah. to uh, make sure that we have some time for, for questions. Uh, I'll start with a question that, that came from the Thompson scholars, uh, from students who are studying uh, international issues. Uh, the question is, uh, how will the violence of the drug wars in Mexico and the spillover into the United States affect immigration from Mexico, and do you think it will change immigration policy and the viewpoint of the United States? Uh, I'll give either of you an opportunity, or both of you an opportunity to uh, deal with that. Well, it's a nightmare, I'm sure, in Washington right this very moment. It's a nightmare, I'm sure, all, both of us will agree on. That the possibility is that, uh, that Mexico could collapse as a result of the drug violence within, this, within Mexico. It's a frightening issue, which no one even wants to ponder even though our Secretary of State was in Mexico today, almost for this very reason. And the President's going down and a lot of other people are going down. It's not the subject of tonight's debate, but it's a frightening issue. And it, it could very easily uh, lead to a massive movement of persons across the border. And then what do you do? Uh, we know during the Mexican Civil War back in 1910 to 1917 that uh, uh, almost a half million people moved across the border, overnight, literally. And, uh, uh, and and that, that could easily happen again. A million people were killed in the Civil War that, that broke out. The most frightening, out of 50, a population of 15 million in Mexico, one million were killed in that horrible Civil War. Civil wars are awful things. Whether this would trigger a Civil War, I don't know. But it, this, this narco-violence is, is a, a frightening concept, which I'm sure every president in Washington is frightened to death about. And of course, we will simply overrun our immigration policy. I mean, I don't, I don't know what we will, I have no idea what we will do. And I'm sure nobody in Washington does it at the moment either. But it's, it is a frightening prospect that it could happen. 
if the states want to regulate something, let them regulate their own damn exports of guns to Mexico. I agree. And these Mexicans... <laughs> the Second Amendment only applies to U.S. Per persons in the United States. It doesn't apply to Mexico. Uh, it seems to me that the Mexicans have gotten the worst of this. We have ruined their country by our insatiable demand for drugs that is entirely unique to the United States. And it comes through Mexico, and it has ruined Mexico because there's so much money floating around that everybody has become corrupted by this, including U.S. citizens on this side. Uh, the, you know, the money doesn't differentiate as to national origin. But what has really upped the stakes is our inability to deal with guns, which go to Mexico, which are then turned upon other Mexicans. And when, when the bullets start coming across the United States, then we say, oh, well, God, it's, this is a terrible thing. This violence against the border. As long as Mexicans are killing each other, it's perfectly fine. Uh, or it's an acceptable loss. Now it spills over into our system. It is along with the militarization of the border. We, we've had border agents who shot a poor, poor goat herder on the US side. We've had US uh, immigration agents who were pardoned by President Bush at the last minute who shot a Mexican on the other side who was running back into Mexico. It has become crazy. And just as we don't differentiate along the border because it's a frontera, it's not a border, that border shifted when Polk sent US troops to Mexico 150 years ago. This border doesn't exist as a cartographer. Geographers don't recognize this. It's a region, it's a frontera, it's a, an area that is indistinguishable from one side to the other. And so it is not purely Mexican violence. Anybody who thinks that the violence in Ciudad Juarez is Mexican violence, it's being perpetrated by US weapons, most of which come from Houston. It's our greatest export. How can we have an export deficit when we're sending some demi guns to Mexico? It, it, it's, we've armed them to shoot at us. It is, it's a dreadful situation. I'm not sure it's an immigration situation, right. but it has to do with this, I believe, at least with the militarization of the border. Which I think is, is, in fact, the immigration issue. Let me ask a second question coming from the Thompson scholars. Uh, if the current economic crisis continues to worsen, how do you feel it will affect attempts to reform America's immigration policy? Well, I, I think I will, I'll take this one. Before you take it too, of course. I you think it's the honest answer. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll, okay, I'll give the honest answer. I'll take the honest answer first. Okay. Um, and this is from an economist. I'm very worried about this economic. This is the first global recession that the world's economy has ever confronted with. And so we don't know exactly what's going to happen here. We've got so, so interactive. We have about exhausted monetary policy in the United States. Interest rates are down almost to zero. We have pretty much exhausted fiscal policy. When people talk about economic stimulus in the economy, my God, we've got trillion dollar deficits already. How much stimulation is it going to take to get this economy moving? I don't think fiscal and monetary policy are going to be able to get us out of this one. And so I think, I will believe our politicians that they're serious about dealing with this question of unemployment and the employment in the United States today. When they start taking up, for example, immigration reform, when we begin to pass what you would think would be first on the agenda. During the 1930s, there was no immigration. There was 500,000 people came in in 10 years. Most of them were Jewish refugees. Uh, and that was all immigration we had. We didn't have any immigration policy back in the Roosevelt days. In fact, research is on the southwest border that it was negative. Immigration, more people went back to Mexico than came from Mexico during the 30s. 
Today we're kind of immigration policy that's going on obliviously, admitting over a million people as legal immigrants, refugees, as if nothing is going on, plus the illegal immigration. I mean, the, and the only thing that's stopping this pathway from citizenship to pass right now, tragically, is the high unemployment rate. Because President Obama was out in California last week, he didn't say anything about it last night on his news conference, but last week he was talking about it all the time. The amnesty, what we're we gonna do for amnesty. We're gonna have it, and it's gonna come. The only thing that's keeping it back is the American people will blow a fuse when you talk about unemployment rates going up, which I think is going to go much higher than 8.1%. We're, we're going to go higher than this. And the, the, the idea that you would legitimize the illegal immigrants in the labor force at a time which unemployment is rising, 12 million citizens unemployed, many people who are in doing skilled jobs are going to have to be pushed down and start doing unskilled jobs before long once the unemployment compensation runs out. So I will believe we are serious about dealing with the problems of employment once we actually bring up immigration. It ought to be up there right now. And secondly, trade policy. And that's a whole other thing to get into. But I don't see how you're ever going to get out of this with the current trade policies that are so unfair. It's not free trade. It's tragically, tragically unfair trade policies that allow that, that forces American employers to pay, uh, follow environmental standards and pay labor standards, health and safety things, and what have you, so that American firms can go abroad and get, get produced abroad products that, which are brought in in violation of all those things, child labor laws and all the rest of it, and then try to compete against those type of imports. It's impossible. So until trade and labor and immigration reform are actually being discussed, I don't believe our, our current politicians are really serious about fighting this problem of unemployment. Astronomers note that when two bodies standing apart actually cross, there's an eclipse, and for that moment, they look aligned. We have just had such a moment. <laughs> I, I have one question uh, directed to each of you uh, for Professor Olivas. Uh, regardless of your view on how the laws of immigration should change, do you agree that the rule of law is being damaged by the rampant and large-scale violation of our current laws? I, I do not. I believe that, uh, that in fact, when people are apprehended and that uh, when people commit crimes, they are prosecuted and then, and then removed, um, I believe that the system is so unfair and so peculiarly unfair to Mexicans uh, and when we have public policies that are conceded to invite people here, I think that uh, it is, it, it's the equivalent of uh, saying that uh, people ought to be uh, jailed for speeding. Uh, I, I just don't, if, if we were serious about this, we would stop it. We are not serious about this, and I believe that uh, we aren't because it, it has these built-in problems. And the problem, in my view, isn't what is illegal. The, the problem is what is legal and I think that it has predictably caused all of these. I don't believe that the rule of law has, has collapsed. I mean, this is not Guantanamo. This is, uh, you know, our, our refugee system works quite apart from this, um, and uh, I think that uh, uh, we do, that, that uh, the widespread uh, willingness of U.S. employers to hire is, uh, is the flouting of the law. They're the ones with most of the resources, and. They're conceitedly doing this and benefiting by it, as all of us are. I don't want to pay $9 for lettuce. I just, I just don't. No one in this room wants to. They just don't understand what it would take to do that. 
And uh, I, I believe that the rule of law is perfectly sound, um, and that immigration is not an example of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, now a question for Professor Briggs. Uh, would you be more willing to admit Mexicans who are uh, free of the narco-criminal terrorism in Mexico rather than coming here simply to improve their family's future? Look, um, I, don't, I don't deal this thing as simply a Mexican issue. I mean, this is immigration, it's about, is, the law is about immigration from all countries. I don't, think, I don't think Mexicans have any more special right to immigrate to the United States than people from many other countries. That's why we tried in 1965 to pass the Immigration Act of 1960. Why I supported it was to get rid of the National Origin Act and try to purge the system from the overt discrimination that was in the Immigration Act up until that time. But the labor market, we've got to understand, is the most sacred thing we really have in this country. And we now find as we go into this recession, the labor market's the most important. People all over the world want to come here to improve themselves. When people come to me and say, I only come here to work, I want a job, that's all I want is a job. I understand the desperation, but I also understand you're asking this economy to give you the most important thing we have to offer. It's like coming up to me and say, can you help me? Can you help me? What do you need? I need your heart. I can't give you my heart, at least until I'm alive. I can't do it. I might like to. I can't do that. I can't let people simply work in the United States because they want to work, because there is such a thing as economics. I mean, economics, and when you, and when you increase the supply of, of anything, and the, unless, the, unless the demand curve shifts with it, the, the, you're going to drive down the wages, wage prices, the prices. And you're going to do all the things we just talked about, what we're having with the illegal immigration. Wages are depressed, poverty increases, income disparity widens, and that's what the result. And, and so simply because people want to work, I understand the desperation, I understand the sincerity, and God knows the illegal immigrants work hard enough. I've done a lot of work in South Texas with the illegal immigrants, and I've seen them work, and I know how hard they work. But that's not enough simply to say you want to work to give you a right to come to the United States. People in the United States want to work too, and there's a lot of blood been shed to build worker protections in this country. And yes, I am a protectionist, and I'm very proud of it. I'm glad we have child labor protections. I'm glad we have fair labor standard protections. I'm glad we have health and safety protections. And I'm glad we have employer sanctions and protections, which is a labor protection that should be protected. And those are the kind of things I think we should be proud of. And I think that, that uh, it's that's simply not enough for people to say, I want to work, let me come in to improve myself. I'm sorry. There, there are limits. And that's what every Commission on Immigration Policy has said, that we've got to face the idea that there are limits. Not everybody who wants to come here can simply come here. It's like you can't go live anywhere you want in the world either. Okay. Uh a question, a question for either or both of you. Uh, if amnesty is not an option, if we don't include it as part of comprehensive immigration reform, what can we realistically do uh, with the 12 million undocumented who are here? There, there is simply no arithmetic to allow for this. It's howling at the moon. Uh, these people are here. Many of them are mixed citizen families. Um, they're going to be here, and I think that uh, the question, is, as I understand the politics of this, are, are not if it's going to happen, but when it happens and the terms under which it will happen. And I think that the prosperity we enjoyed from 1986 on uh, cheers me, it, it encourages me, it doesn't uh, sadden me, and I, I think that, that we will work our way out of this. Uh, the countries I'd be worried about are countries like 
Korea and, and Japan and other countries that don't allow any immigrants whatsoever of any sort, legal or undocumented. Uh, those people, in Italy, these countries have so many old people that they, they are almost on a one-to-one -one basis with retirees and people paying into their pensions, and they're more socialized than we are. Uh, I think that we have, in many respects, uh, an efficacious system uh, that, that has to be repaired, but I think that part of that cycle is repairing this. And I don't agree that the, the various uh, small programs, NACARA and the ones to solve refugee issues, are, are legalization programs. If that's the case, then, then virtually everything's a legalization program, and I will embrace that the way that he has, uh, uh, Professor Briggs has embraced protectionism. Uh, to some people, that's a, a mortal sin. I see that as a, a venial sin, not as a mortal sin. Well, I mean, the, the question you ask is the $64 question, and it's way, it really is the one I thought we were going to really wrestle with tonight here, and uh, you have wrestled with it. Uh, it's a very, it's obviously a difficult question, but as I said before, we've taken our stand. Our law is not ambiguous. And since 1986, it's absolutely clear illegal immigrants are not to work in the United States, not supposed to be here, and they're not especially not supposed to be in the labor market. And in my view, when they, even though the general welfare of the country may be well, the people at the bottom have not had it very good the last 40 years. In fact, Professor Wally Peterson, who used to teach here in economics here in, the, in Nebraska for all those years, in the latter part of the, of the uh, 1970s, 80s, and 90s, was talking about the silent depression at the people at the bottom. Wages were not going up. Poverty has not gone down, and, uh, and, and, and even during the 90s, the, the, the most prosperous period of that era, things were very rough for people, for, for people at the bottom. People at the top, it was wonderful. People in the middle class was wonderful. People at the bottom, nothing happened. In fact, the president even said last night, 30 years, wages at the bottom have not gone up. One reason is the flow of illegal immigrants into that, into that labor market, that low-wage labor market. It, ha it has its adverse impacts. And consequently, the only way to deal with this is simply I'm sorry, say, no, we're not going to give another amnesty. There's no ambiguity. And so it's, it's called, a, it's called a attrition through enforcement. You simply enforce the laws, and, and that includes penalties on employers, not just the penalties on the illegal immigrants. Employer, on those employers who hire them, penalties on those people, fines, legal penalties, fines, which are in the law, and even criminal penalties for repeat offenders. That won't take long for the message to get around if people are actually sent to jail. Now, it hasn't happened. It, but when you begin to send out those signals, then I think we actually get the enforcement of immigration laws, and people are not going to work. They're going to understand they're not going to have jobs. The labor market is sacred in this country, and we're going to protect it. And then when protecting that labor law means that illegal immigrants are not going to be able to work, and the only way you're going to be able to survive, basically, is you're going to have to leave. And that's what the Jordan Commission said. As hard as it was, that's a credible policy. Those people deportable are going to have to leave. Only the people get in are the ones who should get in. Otherwise, the policy is not credible. And at some point, if it's not us tonight, if we have another amnesty, the next 10 years from now, that same debate's going to come up. Eventually, we're going to draw the line. Our we're going to have leadership in this country that's going to simply say, we've got laws, we're a nation of laws, this is what our laws is, and that's what they are. And we don't constantly give amnesty or immunity simply to those that continue to violate the laws. Now, I'm willing to negotiate around the corners of the DREAM Act and some of these other things with children and what have you. But basically, the law has to be that they're not going to be able to stay here and they're not going to work and, and, and that has to be the hard nose. There's no nice way about it and the way I come to that conclusion is because I care about the citizen workers who are adversely affected by their impact and those citizens are a lot of immigrants too. Citizen doesn't mean just native born. Citizen means the permanent resident aliens and it includes naturalized citizens uh, as well and, and people here on legal visas. Their rights in the labor market should be protected 
But there's got to be a line drawn for good social policy reasons. And somewhere we're going to get the guts to enforce these laws. Sometime maybe we'll get a leader who will say that and will do it. And I hope it happens because if it's not, I think the reaction could be some of the more violent extremes that you suggested, that there are elements who eventually will push for the enforcement of these laws beyond things that I want to endorse or ever want to be, even be associated with. But eventually we're going to enforce these laws. I hope we can do it in the bounds of a nation of laws. If you lie down with dogs, you're going to wake up with fleas. Yeah, I know. I'm scared. I, I, I have another question uh, for Professor Olivas. Uh, what is really behind the burst of anti-immigrant sentiment as a potent political weapon? Unions, right-wing nutcases? Yes and yes. Um, well, I, I, I truly understand the anger and the hopelessness that some people feel. Um, my, my people have been here longer than Samuel Huntington's people have been here. Uh, uh, the, the lines changed. Uh, being Mexican used to mean being in Mexico, and then all of a sudden it meant being in the Southwest, all of a sudden was the United States. And these are long historical patterns. They just didn't occur at the last amnesty. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time to sort these out. But I think that there's been a long anti-immigrant sentiment. The same way there's been a long anti-intellectual sentiment in the United States. It's, a, it's very deep. The, the groups change. Instead of signs that say, no Mexicanos ni perros, no Mexicans or dogs, signs that you found in, in Texas in the 1950s, as recently, 1950s, before that it was... Uh, the damned Irish need not apply. And before that, it was, well, Jews from Eastern Europe are a criminal class. I mean, Scribner's carried this in 1880 uh, uh, headlines. There, there's a long history of this with the, the most recent displaced group. But the reason I think that Mexico and, frankly, Canada ought to be treated differently is because of our historical borders and proximity and because, frankly, such a substantial portion of the United States was Mexico. And you can't just simply deem that away by saying, well, I'm not against immigrants generally, and I think that the, the laws have to be enforced. I think those very laws themselves have caused this problem. Why should, how can anybody defend a law that requires a permanent resident of the United States to wait for 12 years if your spouse is from Mexico? If your spouse is from Sweden, she comes in immediately. There is not a 12-year wait. These laws are not even. To think that we have the same numerator and denominator for Mexico that we have for others is a repudiation of the national origin system. To use that as an example of why we ought to do away with singling out Mexico is absurd. Mexico wasn't, wasn't hurt by the national origins. They were helped by it. It was Asian countries that were harmed by the national origin. So to suggest that that somehow addresses Mexico as a unique historical case simply ignores history. And I think that that ahistorical view of immigration to suggest that we gotta treat all these countries equally is simply absurd. And, and I think that, that until we concede its specialness in the same way they'll concede our special relationship with Israel and that we do the same thing with NATO allies and others with whom we have a special relationship. They ain't special compared to Mexico. Mexico is our special case. And, uh, and we ignore it at our peril and we ignore history at our peril. Believe me, every Mexican knows this history and I think every Mexican administrator knows this history and we have alienated them in ways that we've alienated others. And until we actually gain the confidence 
uh, of, of our, uh, until we have our, our economics reestablished, there will be no way politically to get ahead of this problem. And there'll be no way to develop northern Mexico. There'll be no way, as long as we are importing Mexican drugs and exporting guns, there is, we have all the wrong markers going in all the wrong directions. I think Mexico is a special case and deserves special negotiations. Uh, one, one, more, one more question for Professor Briggs. Uh, would you be willing to have more adequately uh, funding for the INS so that it could be more effective in processing uh, immigration uh, of the uh, applicants and, and uh, putting them on the road to citizenship? Of course. Of course, uh, there's no agency in Washington that is more underfunded or overworked, understaffed relative to the mission it's assigned. And just think what would happen if you were to apply to this, this, this agency today, 14 million or 12 million illegal immigrants to adjust their status, what, on top of everything else they've got to do with. I mean, of course, it would require an enormous expansion of the bureaucracy to handle that. But yes, they, they do the job they've got now, they desperately need increases in funding. They simply do what the law asks them to do. Okay, another question, uh, and I think this probably needs to be the, the last one uh, for both of you. Uh, in what way, if any, do human rights uh, enter into this debate? Uh, you've obviously been talking about issues of justice, uh, issues of, of fairness to citizens, issues of fairness to uh, people across the border, uh, from Mexico coming into the United States. So you've already been addressing this without using the term human rights, but, but let's put it within the framework of, of human rights. What, uh, what if anything, uh, do human rights have to do uh, with this debate? Well, obviously human rights are an issue that all people in general are certainly, how can you be opposed to human rights? Uh, it's actually what you mean in application. But what I'm simply saying that is that the answer to every problem in the world, most of which we would probably both agree on, what, we, what our positions would be on, cannot be answered by immigration in the United States. We simply can't say because people are starving to death, because they're being tortured to death, um, because they're being denied political rights or whatever, that just because where you are, you have a right to come to the United States. Uh, Father Hesburgh said that beautifully in the chairman of the Select Commission on Immigration policy. This is why we have immigration and there's nothing policy. There's nothing wrong with a, being a believe in a free society if you believe in, in being able to call for qualitative and quantitative controls. That's not incongruent in saying that you want those controls and believe in a free society. And what he says is the United States is an experiment. And it's an experiment to try to show to the rest of the world whether you can have society which people can disagree but get along. Whether you can have a government by consent where the minority agrees to be governed by the majority. Yeah, where people can have women's rights and female rights and gay rights and all these other kinds of things. Can you have these things? And the one thing that would end it, if open migration, even though it may sound beautiful, theoretically, that everybody have one big world and move wherever they want, would destroy all that, as he pointed out. You've got to have some examples, and that's why we have an immigration policy in a part, to show that a nation can try, to, can try in our hesitantly way, which we have tried to stumble, to do those type of things that you can have, such as society. But the one way that you'll guarantee that you will not be able to have any of those rights anywhere on this planet is open free immigration. And, and that's the sad part of it. That's the reality of it. 
So yes, I'm in favor of human rights. I, I think the United States should stand up for human rights. I believe we shouldn't trade with countries that violate the human rights of other people. I believe that strongly. Uh, but, uh, but that's not the economic reality right this moment. Uh, and and, and uh, so that you've got to simply say that immigration cannot be the answer to those things. As much as you like to say, I don't want to identify with exploitation of all those people on the planet, you can't simply say because people are exploited or denied rights, they have a right to come to the United States. That doesn't mean we can't vocally stand up and support and hope those countries can change and put pressure on the United States in many other ways by denying trade or denying uh, access or in terms of, the, even, I would even deny access to people that come from governments that exploit their own citizens uh, from what have you. Uh, but uh, I cannot, you cannot simply say because people are being exploited or because they're starving, because they have a right simply to come to the United States and work. I'm sorry. It's simply can't, that's not the reality of the world. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you for leaving it to me to carve out the, uh, the, the nihilist uh, uh, in this. Uh, actually, I can claim moral ground here. I think that our refugee policy is where the discourse of human rights properly belongs. Um, immigration law is, is consistently a matter of sovereignty, and people outside the United States have no uh, recognized, and we've entered into no treaties or codicils or other international agreements that require us to allow people to come in unless they lay legitimate claims to refuge, uh, which is a, a more narrowly defined area where yeah. the body of human rights uh, does occur. Uh, I think that we have a lot to offer here. We're among the most generous in the world with regard to our refugees, but I think that what happens is that characterizing some of these developments, such as I believe that you did when you counted amnesties, uh, really does cloud the issue because those are a completely separate body of laws Allowing Chinese who were persecuted in Tiananmen Square is not an amnesty. If, if, if by amnesty we mean that, then, then yes, I guess we've had a bunch of them. But in the narrow sense of immigration and comprehensive immigration reform, we're not looking to revise refugee law or asylum law. I think the United States and Canada are perhaps the two uh, greatest examples of this in the world, and I wish other countries would aspire to us. I don't think that we can say the same of our legal immigration system, and I just don't agree that it is fairly uh, uh, enacted, and I don't believe it's fairly applied, and I think that uh, to uh, blind ourselves to the unique position of Mexico uh, continues to mean that we'll vacillate between the two and invoke those norms uh, unsuccessfully. I, if, if someone comes from Mexico and is persecuted because uh, their human rights are violated, they can come into the United States. We don't have per-country limitations on refugees and asylum seekers. And so I think that our system there is, is a model to be emulated. It's not saying we couldn't improve it, but it's our immigration policy that uh, um, fails, collapses under its own weight, and I think that the, the data suggests this. So uh, I have no uh, quarrel with our refugee policy. It's not to say that I haven't cursed the darkness when my client from Somalia who faced female genital mutilation couldn't get in because she'd already been harmed and it can't happen again. And so a, a, an immigration judge, a refugee judge says, well, she can't be harmed again. She's okay. Well, my Lord, what, what parallel universe did I stumble into? So it's not, it's not a perfect world, but I'll defend that one it's much easier and have that. I'll be the Vernon Briggs defending that system uh, in a way that I will not uh, defend our current immigration system. The
the, the purpose of the Wilson Dialogue uh, this year, as in previous years and in future years, uh, is to stimulate vigorous discussion of important public issues. I think you will agree with me uh, that we've seen a model of, of uh, that purpose displayed this evening. Please join me in uh, thanking our two guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.